O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength, by your Holy Spirit lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, that was a lovely way to wake up. <laughs> there's, there's nothing quite like uh, Christian singing at 9.30 in the morning uh, and singing well in four-part harmony. Um, we are continuing on in the catechism, um, and we are going to begin to speak about Christ, uh, Christ and his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, and his descent among the dead. So we are on question number 60. I'm not sure what that is in the various catechism formats we have, uh, but if you have the black leather edition, it's on page 45. This is question 60. So far what we've said is we've spoken on uh, what the incarnation means. And I guess I didn't really even spend much time on this, but when we Christians speak of the incarnation, we speak of God the Son taking on flesh. That's what the incarnation means. And that flesh, and I should say this clearly, that flesh doesn't simply kind of mean that this kind of meaty body, right? It means he takes on um, all that a human being has. Okay, so it doesn't just mean like, oh, that, that fleshly portion. It means he, he takes on every bit of human life. Um, and that's what we say happens in the incarnation. Um, <clears throat> But continuing on, we're going to speak about his, his we already spoke, spoken a bit about his suffering under Pontius Pilate, um, which, what does that tell us when we say that in the Creed? Yep, it's the, it's the scandal of, uh, of particularity, yes? <laughs> it's to say that it, it, this doesn't just happen in a kind of general time frame. Doesn't, um, and we also don't say, well, it just sort of, happens and rehappens in new ways and all this, you know, it happens specific time. Um, and it, it speaks to the, the historicity of the accounts. That's the other thing about it, which is to say that um, Christians don't sort of sit there and say, well, we, we believe so strongly in the, in the idea of Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. It's such a good idea. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to have happened in history. Well, no, that's not what we actually say. We say, <laughs> it happened, it happened. Now we continue on. Was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. What does Jesus' crucifixion mean? It means that Jesus was executed as a common criminal. He was scourged, mocked, and nailed to a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Though humanly a miscarriage of justice, his execution fulfilled God's plan that Jesus would bear my sins and die the death that I deserved, so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. Okay. Jesus was executed as a common criminal. Um, you may know this, that in Roman law, it was impossible, according to Roman law, to execute a Roman citizen. Who did you execute in that? In, well, execute them by crucifixion. You know, if you were a Roman citizen, and Paul was, for instance, Paul was beheaded, not crucified. How did you, ex you know, so you got a nice, quick, clean death if you were a Roman citizen. But crucifixion was made for rebels, for traitors. Um, it was meant to be the worst kind of mockery um, and the worst kind of death that, um, that was not fit for noble people. 
Um, crucifixion was what you did for uh, for ne'er do wells on the on the edges of the empire, um, and and particularly for Jews, but more commonly for slaves. Um, so this is an this is an amazing thing that happens here. This is this is an image. The, the cross is an image of the brutality of Roman power, um, and he bears that as a common criminal. Um, the, the method of crucifixion uh, has, has two ends. Um, one is to so strain the body that, uh, that, that, you, that you just die under the stress. The other is to get you to basically suffocate on your own blood as your lungs fill up. Uh, because it's, it, is, it is basically inflicting trauma upon trauma upon trauma on the body. Um, that's what this business is of scourging and mocking and and, uh, and, and nailing is happening. He was also uh, crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, um, which is a <clears throat> an interesting thing to say the least. But it means that uh, he was he was put out of the city, um, quite simply put out of put out of the holy city, um, put where put into the outer parts of things. Um, we can say clearly that this was a miscarriage of justice, yes. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting that in the, in the Gospels, um, it's not that he's sentenced to death. What happens in the Gospels? He's handed over to the people. He's handed over to the will of the people. Um, and this sort of serves to say, you know, watch Pilate. He washes his hands of it. That says, I am not going to exercise power here at all. Um, you go do what you want with him, and my, my, my soldiers are at your disposal. Go, go carry it on. Um, that's what the scriptures are saying happened, um, which is very believable, actually, because this was a function of kind of a Roman governor saying, I'm not going to have any part in this. What you do is your business. Um, so it was a miscarriage of justice. Justice was not carried out. His execution fulfilled God's plan that Jesus would bear my sins and die the death that I deserve, so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. Um, what, what we Christians say of the, resur- of the, of the crucifixion is not <clears throat> that it's sort of just a miscarriage of justice and very lamentable. What we say is that actually this is, and this is what the New Testament says, is that in the cross we see the righteousness of God um, uh, who turns his face uh, to those who spit on him, um, who offers his back to the cross um, and takes on his back and takes on his body uh, this, this torturous death for us. Why does the creed make a point of saying that Jesus died? The creed makes the point to emphasize that Jesus died a real bodily death, such as all people face because of our sins. Uh, There were ancient heretics called docetists who held that uh, Jesus only appeared to die on the cross. Um, Why would would an actual death of Jesus be so odious to some ancient heretics? Yeah, this is the problem. Right? We, spoke, we spoke of this last week. Like, we can't say that God died. That would be an immense scandal. Um, 
yet they knew that the language works out such that that's what you gotta say if you hold it at that extreme point. And so they, they were trying for a moderated position which said, well, you know, so just say he didn't die. Just say he only appeared to die. Um, say that when he received the vinegar on the sponge, there might have been something extra in there, and he passes out, and, and uh, everybody, you know, he, they, they put him in the tomb, and, and you know, la da dee, la da da, it's done, right? Um, the, the problem with, I mean, that, there's manifold problems with that, uh, but, but, but the main one is this. Romans don't bungle crucifixions. They just plain don't. Um, if they took him down from that cross, he was dead. Um, and they would have made sure of that. That's what this whole business of piercing in the side is all about. And I should say as well, that's just not what the scriptures say, right? They say he died. Um, now, you may know this, that one of the largest religious sects in the world holds this regarding Jesus. You know what it is? This kind of uh, docetist position? It's Islam. Islam holds that Jesus uh, sort of passes out on the cross and, and they, they take him down. Um, and, and that he later just sort of <laughs> wakes up and dies a normal death. Um, and, and this is to say that actually, and I want, want you to see this, Islam is actually a kind of rehashing of Christian heresy. Um, so you have to see that. But we Christians hold that Jesus died, died, dead, dead, okay? Uh, no question about it. Why does the creed emphasize Jesus' death in this way? The creed emphasizes Jesus' death to counter suspicions that Jesus did not truly die on the cross, to celebrate the fact that he died there to secure our salvation, and to prepare our minds to grasp the glory of his bodily resurrection. So there's two pieces here. One we've already talked, there are three pieces here. One we've already talked about. The second is to celebrate this fact. Um, and think about this. There are many perspectives on this in Scripture, but, but one of the main ones is that Jesus is offered as a sacrifice on the cross. What kind of sacrifice is it if he doesn't die? Um, sacrifice involves death. And, and, and it's clear enough um, that, that this is what Scripture is saying about Jesus, that he's a paschal lamb who dies on the cross. The third thing is that it prepares our minds to grasp this glory of the bodily resurrection. Um, that's why these kind of uh, fanciful yet, uh, you know, people will say, yeah, but this is just science, you know. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't die and rise again. So we'll have to find some other way. So they say, well, you know, he passed out or, uh, or some other thing. But anything to avoid this death and bodily resurrection. Because the two go together, right? The, the resurrection without a death is what? I mean, how's that work? What is that? Okay. But also the death without a resurrection is what? Depressing, yeah? Kind of pointless. Um, so, so that an actual death is required for the resurrection to be meaningful at all. What does the creed mean by saying that Jesus descended to the dead? That Jesus descended to the dead means that he truly died. His spirit did not remain with his body, but entered the realm of death. Um, so we know this from scripture. Jesus' body was prepared for burial. Um, the Gospel of John depicts Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus preparing his body with 100 pounds 
of costly ointment. Um, I did the math on this once. It's, it's $1.3 million in today's terms of ointment. That's just that's, that's a crazy amount, right? But this is what Scripture says they did. They wrapped him in a clean linen shroud, and they laid him in a new tomb. Now, what's, what's the point about a new tomb? Yeah, it hadn't been used yet. Um, so there was no way, and, and these tombs were large. You could put several bodies in at once, and they could be at various, varying states of decomposition. And then what you did was you went in, and you took the bones out, and you put them in a box, a stone box called an ossuary. That was normal Jewish burial practice. And what you would do is you'd move those bones to the Mount of Olives, uh, which is where good Jews want to be buried, because that's where you can behold the resurrection. Um, and, and the resurrection of the dead starts there. Um, but what happens in scripture is that on the, on, in the center, well, really on the, on, the, uh, on the western side of the city walls, Jesus is buried in a brand new tomb, um, meaning they can't sort of say, ha, 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 you know, it's not that set of bones, it's that, you know, that's him over there. They can't do that. Um, there's, no, there's no playing around here. This is a new tomb, never been used before. And, but with Scripture goes further in this, right? Saying not only do they put him in the tomb, but that um, he descends among the dead. Um, and we read this in 1 Peter chapter 3, that the gospel is preached among the dead, um, and what this means is, is lots of, there's been a lot of debate about this. But we can say clearly, I think, that, that Jesus goes to meet the dead um, in, his, uh, in his spirit. That's one way to put it. Um, and there's some, wonderful, there's some wonderful meditation on this. You, know, you can read that wonderful homily. There's an ancient homily uh, for Holy Saturday where the, the preacher depicts Jesus descending among the dead, bearing this victorious weapon, the cross, and reaching out, looking to Adam and looking to the others and saying, peace be with you. Um, this, this, this descent among the dead is a fundamental reordering of, of uh, the, the post-life uh, uh, order of the, of the cosmos. So that's something you got to see. On the third day, he rose again. What does, it, what does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated. God restored him physically from death to life in his perfect and glorious body, never to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. Okay. So the uniqueness of the, of, of, uh, the Christian account here is that Jesus, it's not like somebody did CPR. Would that have worked? No, because he was dead, okay? <laughs> he was dead. Um, and also, you know, that's just not how it works. You know, you, you, you. somebody who's been through that much trauma, there's no way to restore them. There's no way to, we've, we've got a, one of those like uh, AED machines here now. That wouldn't work either, right? Because he's dead. Um, and can't be brought back to life. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
no heart beating at all. So Dr. Hess is, uh, is giving us a medical position on this, which is that the, the, the blood and, and serum have, have now separated uh, because the heart's not pumping. So there's, there's a separation there that takes place. So when blood and water flow forth from inside, that's what's going on. Um, I've heard that actually before. It's, it's, it's just to say that what, what the scriptures, I mean, th there's, there's just no way around this. What the scriptures state emphatically is that he died, dead as a doornail. Um, you, you can contest that account and say that it's wrong and that it didn't get it right um, all day long, but you're going on your own opinion uh, without having firsthand accounts or eyewitness accounts of any kind regarding that. Um, these are eyewitnesses saying this, that this is how the death took place. Um, so resuscitation, now here's the other thing about resuscitation. If, if I were to drop dead here now and I was to be resuscitated, what will still happen to me? I'm still gonna die at some point, right? Um, you know, I don't get a get out of death free card just because I had CPR performed in 2018. It's not how it works. Uh, my body is still liable to decay and death. What we speak of when we speak of the resurrection is Jesus' body rising to a new life um, that is not liable to decay and death. Um, how do we see this in scripture? Well, think about it. You know this, right? Jesus' body is a bit mysterious in the, in the, in the resurrection accounts. Right? Like what, what happens to him? What can he do? Yeah, he just, like, appear behind locked doors. That's a neat trick. What else? Yeah, well, he, well, he, can, he, can, he can disappear and reappear a great distance away immediately. And the Gospels don't try to make sense of this. Right? That's what's really wild is. The Gospel accounts don't try to say, yeah, what we think happened was he, like, got on a jet ski and went across the Sea of Galilee and then hopped a train. I mean, they don't say that. What they say is, this is just how, it, this is what the resurrection body is like. It's mysterious and interesting, but, but can you touch him? Well, yeah. Like, like he shows them his hands and his feet. Um, he, he, what else does he do? He eats, right? Do ghosts eat? No, you've seen Ghostbusters, right? The, <laughs> the, the ghost and Ghostbuster in the hotel uh, ballroom and just falls right through. Um, because, because he's not a pure spirit. He's an actual body. Right? Now, is it, a body, is it a body like ours? Well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. It's a glorified body. Um, and this is the point that people have to get, because if, if there, there are some New Testament scholars who will say, well, we see that the resurrection is not bodily because this is the account. So the, the disciples' experiences of that of a spirit, not a body. But that doesn't line up with, with everything else that's said. Do you see the point? So the scriptures, the, the, the gospels in particular, lay out a very interesting way of thinking about it, which, which is to say um, that they don't, they don't try to explain it away. They just say, this is what we saw. It was wild, right? Unexplainable, really. Um, but here's, what, here's where the real clincher is. They understand that this body that they see, this Jesus whom they see, risen among them, 
is the only hope they've got. Now, how wild is that? I mean, Paul's take on the resurrection is wonderful in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? He says, if this thing didn't happen, we are of all men to be pitied. Um, he's basically saying all of life is a waste, complete waste. Um, and, he, he, and he says emphatically, this did happen. We saw it. Many people saw it. Um, and so this is, this is what this last section was. Uh, this last sentence is, the risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and by hundreds of other witnesses. Paul says 500 people at one time. Okay. Now, that, that last phrase there, at one time, is really important um, because the claim being made is not that 500 people saw him separately in their dreams or something. What is it, what is it saying? Yeah, they like straight up saw him together. Yeah. Um, and so all these other theories fall apart too. Like the theory that 500 people, you know, were, I don't know, doing peyote and they saw, they saw this risen Jesus, right? Like that doesn't work. Um, not only that, because drug-induced um, visions, what happens? Do people all see the same thing? No, they all see totally different things, wild, you know, wildly individualized, right? Um, and of course, the other thing that's, 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 that's very interesting here is that if 500 people see one event, it, just in normal, normal stuff, right? People will say, oh, I saw this, well, I saw this, well, I saw this, I saw this. And here, there's agreement. Uh, because it's, and this is a point that N.T. Wright makes that I just love. It says, the disciples could not have seen this coming. This wasn't even in their world. Um, so, so what they write about is something completely unexpected. Go ahead. Ah, yes. So, so it's this question about lots of people don't recognize Jesus after his resurrection. And it's, there, there could be a couple things. One option is there's a sort of uh, dissociation from the dead, right? Where you know he's dead and you just, you're, just, you're in denial, right? So basically psychological approach which says the first thing that happens when you're in mourning is what? Denial. So in the first few days following this, they're in total denial, and they see him, and they don't, they don't want to think it's him. Okay. I, I don't buy that. I think that, that listen, they, they spent so much time with him. Um, and and uh, so I, don't, I just don't buy it. The other, the other approach is to say that he's got some ability to change his appearance in his risen body. Um, why he does this? not entirely clear. Um, but, you know, two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus with him don't recognize him. These are not, like, these are not outsiders. They're disciples. And, and when do they actually see him? When do they know it's him? When do they recognize him? In the breaking of bread. So it says, and this is, this is fascinating. It says they don't recognize him in his person. They don't, like, see his face and think, oh, it's Jesus. Ah. No, it's like in the breaking of bread they recognize him. Um, so I think this is to say that, that my take on it is he, he could change his appearance. Um, and, and part of the reason could be, and this is, this is what I think, actually. Part of the reason could be that um, for Jesus to rise and look as he had before all the time makes it a bit too simple, right? It is not really faith required of that. Um, 
But, but again, here's the other part of it too. The scriptural accounts are that, that Jesus' body is risen in a glorious way. I mean, it's not just glorious when he chooses to be, it's glorious all the time. Um, so that's something just to kind of keep in mind, is that um, it's, it's a, different, a different look. Um, so I hope that, make, hope that helps. What kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and see his scars, and ate with them. So what we read of is 40 days of these resurrection appearances. Um, and they happen all over the place, all over the map on the same day, all over the place, right? Road to Emmaus event happens out by Emmaus, and where is he later on that day? He's gone from Jerusalem to the road to Emmaus, and then back to Jerusalem, right, to the upper room. Um, and people say that's impossible for a bodily resurrection. Not, not if the bodily resurrection is glorious, right? And that body is no longer limited in time and space. Um, so he visits his disciples. He teaches them. Uh, he, he appears to them constantly. Uh, and, and most of all, invites them to touch him and see his scars. Um, there's that wonderful scene of, of, uh, of Thomas um, saying, I, I won't believe until I see the, the scars in his hands and his feet. Um, and what does he do when he sees those scars? This is telling. This is, this is a major moment in the New Testament. He doesn't say, oh, it's Jesus. It's really you. Nope. He says, my Lord and my God. What Thomas is saying here is, is cannot be mistaken, Right? Um, this is like, this is the stuff that will drive Jehovah's Witnesses nuts, okay? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, he drops to his knees and, and, and says emphatically that this is the God that he was trained to believe in as a young Jewish man. Yes? Like, this is the God that he's put his hope into. It's here, right here, the risen Christ is God. Um, that can't be mistaken. And the resurrection is a proof of that. Uh, so that's wonderful, wonderful good news. All right, should we move on to the ascension? Go ahead. Yes. Um, so this is a question regarding the scars. You know, why were the scars retained? Um, well, in one sense, they're, they're retained as a proof, right? It's a, it's a proof that this is, I'm actually Jesus, right? There wasn't a sort of stand-in for the, for the crucifixion, and then I'm over here. It's, it's not that. Um, but there's something also really wonderful, and, and I would say that actually a lot's been written about this more recently. I'm trying to think of those who have. But that we like to think of, of the heavenly realities and the heavenly existence as being scrubbed clean of all unpleasantness. Yes? But this isn't what Scripture speaks about. Um, Jesus retains the scars um, to show that, um, that, that the worst evils uh, can actually be turned for good. Um, so this, this image of suffering and death gets turned to a glorious thing. Um, 
and it kind of raises some questions for you. Like, do you get to keep your scars in heaven? Um, there's a one, there, there are philosophers and uh, theologians thinking about this very thing, you know. Do disabled people retain their disabilities in heaven? And in what way? Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people may be troubled by that. But, but what they're saying is, and I think this is really powerful, they're saying, well, so what if that disability is turned into something glorious? Uh, and, and wonderful. Um, so those are, those are some really big, and there's grand debates about it, but that's, that's, that's what's at the heart of it. Um, I would say, too, that um, we've got to understand what redemption looks like, and redemption um, does not mean sort of papering over the past. Um, redemption means giving it a new, giving it a new, a new life, um, which is why, you know, in the Easter Vigil is that wonderful... Uh, musical piece called the Exultet uh, that's sung by the deacon on Easter, uh, the Easter Vigil. If you haven't been to this, you'll, you'll see it this year. But the deacon sings, O happy fault, O truly necessary sin of Adam. And you, you have to do a double take. Like, what? Happy fault? Like, necessary sin? What? But what, what, what's being said there is, Without these things, without these horrors, the horrors of sin and the horrors of the fall, our redemption would not be so glorious. Um, which is which is really lovely, right? That's a that's a that'll preach, <laughs> and and it's big, it's big. Um, so so I think you know that's where you see those scars retained. It's like, this is this is what's going on, um, because the teaching of the fathers. I think this is where I'll end on this part. And this is actually where we get to the ascension. The teaching of the fathers is not that, uh, that in redemption and in the redemption wrought by the cross and resurrection that we're returned to our pre-fall state or pre-fall condition as human beings. What is it? What's going on? Oh, it's way better. Because the vision which we see of the resurrection this is how Christians understand this. Christians understand that what happens in the resurrection is what will happen to you and me, ultimately. Um, that in fact the resurrection holds forth a promise not just to Christians but to everyone of new life. Um, and that's, that, that's not to say that that final state is secure. It's to say that, uh, that the resurrection is a general, um, is a thing that will happen in general to all human beings. Okay. He ascended into heaven. How should you understand Jesus' ascension into heaven? Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. There he intercedes for his people and receives into heavenly life all who have faith in him. Though absent in body, Jesus is always with me by his Spirit and hears me when I pray. Okay, so what we read is in, in the Acts of the Apostles and in, um, uh, well, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, that Jesus is taken up out of their sight uh, into heaven. And the question is, well, where is he? Where'd he go? Um, you know, can you just sort of go out towards Jupiter, take a left turn and see him? Is that what's being said? This is kind of where some of our, our more modern categories fail. Um, and you kind of got to go back to these Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas and ideals, which is that um, 
yes, we speak emphatically of Jesus, the human being, his human nature being taken up into God. But here's part of the problem. Um, can you go find him somewhere? What the fathers speak of, and I think this is really, really wonderful, is that in this ascended body, he's so taken up into God that, that his body takes on the properties, that his human nature takes on the properties of divinity. What this looks like is something like an iron in the fire, right? So what is an iron in and of itself? It's cold, it's dark, it's black, it's, uh, it's hard. But you stick it in the fire for a while, and what happens? It starts to glow red. It, um, it starts to take on all of these fiery properties. Is the iron fire? No. What is it? It's iron. But it's taken on the properties of the fire. And the Father's view this as an analogy to say, this is what happens in, in, in the Lord's ascension. Uh, his human nature becomes suffused with the properties of divinity, um, which is a wonderful thing, right? That's, that's what we have to look forward to, right? That's what the, that's what the ascension is talking about. There, he intercedes for his people and receives into heavenly life all who have faith in him. The activity which goes on at the right hand of the Father is that of intercession. Um, and it is, it is intercession uh, which is pointed to, and, and this is an interesting thing, in the Old Testament, the intercessor in the Old Testament is who? I'll remember this. Moses. What does Moses do? He's taken up into the cloud, right? And he, he stands on the mountain of God and, and has these uh, dialogues, these intercessory dialogues with God in the cloud. But what do we not see? Or what does he not see? Does he see God? No, he doesn't. Um, but he experiences his glory there on the mountain. But it's imperfect. When we speak of the ascension, we're speaking of Jesus Christ uh, the true priest, yes, both God and man, entering up into the Godhead um, and, and receiving with his human eyes the full vision of God. Um, and it is there that he intercedes. And it is uh, constantly beholding the gaze of the Father that he prays, um, which, is, which is a wonderful image. Who does, who's he praying for? For us. Um, that's, uh, that'll, that'll get you going, won't it? Um, to know that Jesus constantly intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, constantly. And it is this, it is this uh, being seated at the right hand of the Father that, that uh, well, first of all, it makes, makes his prayers very effective, yes? But second of all, allows for uh, this, this thing to happen. And he speaks of this in the Gospels. Um, that, that, you know, if I don't go to the Father, what can I not do? Can't send you the Spirit. So the result, of the, the result of the ascension is the descent of the Holy Spirit. We'll say more about that. But let's, let's go to question 67. What is the result of the ascension? Jesus ascended into heaven so that through him the Father might send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Christians are united as Christ's body on earth to Jesus, are ascended in living head, and in him to one another. Okay. This is what the New Testament is talking about when it speaks of the ascension and, and this 
sending of the Holy Spirit together. And we're going to say more about this when we get to the uh, Pentecost section of the, of, the, of the Apostles' Creed, or really the Holy Spirit section. But it's simply to say that, that Jesus' ascension makes this gift of the Holy Spirit possible. And it is through the Holy Spirit that Christians are united um, to be Christ's living body on earth. Um, some of the wonderful theologians of the last century have, had spoken of how Jesus has three bodies. Um, one is the body which he was born in from his mother Mary. Two is his body in the Eucharist. Three is his body the church. Um, all three are his body. Um, and, and that's a really, uh, well, and how are they, how, well, how are they affected? How does that happen? Okay, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, he comes to bread and wine through the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell with his living body, the church, through his Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit constitutes the body of Christ as the church. And this is why when we speak of, of baptism, we'll say a lot more about this in coming chapters, uh, but what we're speaking of is the Holy Spirit being imparted to that recipient of baptism um, so that uh, they are joined to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is the reality for us, is that, um, and I don't want to go too far afield in Trinitarian theology and make a mistake, but I will. Uh, Augustine speaks of, of the Holy Spirit being this kind of constant uh, sigh between the Father and the Son. As they, as they kind of speak to each other. Um, and and this, this person of the Spirit is, is this, um, this breath of God. And if that breath is given to us, what do we, what do we get? We get union with the Godhead. We become part of the Trinitarian life. Um, so that's what, that's what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're taken up in, into God. All right. Um, should we move on? And is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean for Jesus to sit at the God the Father's right hand? The throne on the monarch's right was traditionally the seat for the chief executive in the kingdom. Ruling with his Father in heaven, Jesus is Lord over the church and all creation. With authority to equip his church, advance his kingdom, brings sinners into saving fellowship with God the Father, and finally to establish justice and peace upon the earth. So this, this idea of a chief executive, I don't really like it because it's kind of uh, modern corporate talk uh, in a way that's not really helpful. Um, what's really going on here is, is that this is the, the, the prime minister of justice at the right hand of the Father. Um, which is to say that in the ancient world, if you, if, you had a, if you had a justice dispute, who'd you take it to? You don't take it directly to the king, right? Because you'd probably die. What'd you do? You, you, you have access to the king through this appointee, the highest appointee. Um, and that is to say that Jesus, the right hand of the Father, serves in this role of of a kind of ruling, ruling with the Father, um, exercising lordship, 
over the church and over creation. Again, what does this lordship consist in? It's a glorious mastery. Um, that Jesus holds glorious mastery over creation and over the church. With authority to equip his church. How does he equip us? Does Jesus sort of say, you know, you got a lot of great skills. I could use some of those skills. You're, you're good. You'll, you'll be fine. Just help out from time to time. No, Jesus equips his church with his grace. Um, and it's that grace, so often in, in so many circles in America, grace is spoken merely as a kind of covering over sin. But grace is much more than that. In, in the New Testament. Grace is a gift, and a gift that can be used. I mean, it's a supernatural gift um, that, that, uh, that gives us supernatural ability. Um, so Jesus equips his church with his grace. Um, he also is, from this right hand, advancing the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things you're going to hear about next Sunday, because we're going to take a break from catechesis, is Father Jerry Kramer speaking about how Jesus, even right now, in the worst places on the planet, is advancing his kingdom. It's amazing, right? So when things get to their absolute worst, what is, what is God doing? He's advancing his kingdom. Um, and this is, this is an amazing thing. Um, he brings sinners into saving fellowship with God the Father. This is a big comfort, isn't it? So let me put this in your head. You and I have no power to bring sinners into fellowship with Jesus. We're really bad at it. Jesus has power to bring sinners into fellowship with himself. Um, and he'll use you to do it. <laughs> um, but he has the power and authority to do it. And finally, to establish justice and peace on the earth. Um, and I would say this is an ongoing thing, um, which will be completed. What does Jesus do for you as he sits at the Father's right hand? Noting my needs and receiving my prayers, Jesus intercedes for me as our great high priest. Through Jesus and in his name, I am now granted access to the Father when I make my confessions, praises, thanksgivings, and requests to him. This is why we always pray with this final statement, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We make our intercessions through Jesus to the Father. Um, which is really the only way for prayer to be effective, right? And that's sort of, that's absolutely the case, yes? Um, because without this access granted to us by Jesus, um, by the Father, um, it doesn't work. Okay, let's wrap up. How does your knowledge of Jesus' heavenly ministry affect your life today? I can rely on Jesus always to be present with me as he promised, and I should always look to him for help as I seek to serve him. Um, so the Christian should always be assured of this ongoing presence of Jesus. And this is something where Christians in the past have been a little bit spotty, because they've said, well, if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, how can he be with me? Insufficient thought on the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, this is, this is, there, are, there are some Christians who, who just don't want to think about the Holy Spirit much. And if you're one of those, I'm just going to tell you it's okay, all right? 
You're not going to wind up rolling around on the floor because you think about the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's not how it works. Okay? Um, but the Holy Spirit uh, brings us into this living relationship with Jesus um, such that the distinctions of time and space pass away. Um, and we become uh, enwrapped in, 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 this, in, the, in the presence of Christ. So I want you to hear that. that um, and it's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? Jesus, right before he ascends, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. And then he goes away. So what do we make of this? It, well, it's both, right? It's a great paradox. He's with us and not with us. Um, he's with us in these ways, but not in this way. You see the point? So it's, it's to say that Jesus is with us, um, and we can, we can believe that. And in fact, even some, some theologians say Jesus is most with us because he's with the Father. And he's brought, this is the thing, he's brought his, his full human nature to the right hand of the Father, which means he's brought us with him. I mean, this is, this is kind of the brilliance of Calvin in some senses. Calvin says, this is what the Eucharist is all about. It's about being with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, not about Jesus coming to us. Okay. And what, what do we Anglicans say whenever we're faced with these the theological paradoxes? Which is it? There or here? We say, yes. <laughs> that and everything else. Yes, it's both, right? Um, and that's an important thing. So actually, this is just a, I'll give you this guideline. We're going to we're going to start a new class uh, in the coming weeks, but, but it's a preview, right? When Anglicans are faced with theological paradoxes, we usually say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and it's not because we're noncommittal. It's that taking extreme sides often betrays, it doesn't betray the whole picture. Um, so we say, yes, both. It's both. Both and. Okay? So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's also with me. Um, and I should always look to him for help as I seek to serve him. Um, and this is, this is the great scandal of, of our sinful lives, is that um, we ought to know as Christians that Jesus is uh, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and yet how often do we take things upon ourselves? Say, I'm the only thing necessary to this thing working. is me and my work. Uh, me and my uh, stick to um, which you're being more American than Christian. I can say that. Uh, and, and, and so we should always pray. Um, and we should pray for two reasons. One is that we ought to know that we don't have it in us to last uh, through, through uh, the difficulty of this life. We just really don't have it. The second is we should know this. You're going to die. Someday you're going to die. And all you'll have... God willing. This is the hope of the Christian life. All you'll have is Jesus. So get used to it. Right? <laughs> and that's to say, start, you know, this is, if, you, if you're not praying regularly, this should be the encouragement to you. Is pray regularly. Uh, because it's only through entering into this intimacy with the risen Christ um, that, that we can receive the great benefit of that. Um, and that requires regular and constant prayer. Um, as we make it, as we as we enter into this, and, th and this is this is, I'm going on too long, but let me just say it. The Christian life of prayer is explicitly tied to the ascension. Um, we pray with confidence in the living Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. Um, uh, 
that's what makes prayer possible, is that we have a, we have a high priest at the right hand of the Father. Okay, we'll begin shortly. Thank you.